Welcome to episode 100 of Acquiring Minds. To celebrate the triple digits, I thought I'd do something a little different. Today's episode is five mini interviews with previous Acquiring Minds guests, guests who came on a year ago or more. I wanted to know how their ventures are going one year later and how they feel now about that huge decision to buy a business. Hopefully, some of you have been listening long enough to recognize these guests. Chris Edwards, who acquired a flooring business. Philippe van der Hoydonk, a B2B media business in the pets industry. Cassie Niekamp, a fencing business. Andrew Pierno is buying multiple small SaaS businesses. And finally, Mike Bodkin, who bought a small landscaping business and has quickly parlayed that into becoming a player in the landscaping industry. Each of these conversations is just 15 or so minutes long, and you can consult the show notes for links to all these folks' original episodes. Please let me know if you like this kind of one-year-later format. I know I loved reconnecting with these guests and learning how they feel about their decision and what they've learned. I could totally see making this a regular Acquiring Minds feature, but I need to know if you like it too. Lastly, thank you for listening. Building Acquiring Minds has been one of the most invigorating and gratifying phases of my career. Here's to the next 100 episodes. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. Wouldn't it be great to have experts at your back when buying a business? People to help you polish up your pitch and processes as you go to market as a searcher, then help you evaluate opportunities once you get some deal flow. Such experts exist, buy-side advisors, but they'll cost you to the tune of tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars. But another option exists, the Acquisition Lab. The Lab is a do-it-with-you buy-side advisory service, not do-it-for-you. Founded by Walker Dibel, author of Buy Then Build, the Lab represents Walker's vision for what is most needed to make a searcher successful and available at an accessible price. It's cohort-based, and you will come out the other side of your cohort prepared to go to market as a savvy searcher with a tight message and process so brokers take you seriously, pre-approved for a loan, and with an entire community at your disposal to help you along the journey to buying a business. To learn more, check out acquisitionlab.com, link in the show notes. Okay, here is the first mini interview with Chris Edwards. Chris's was episode 19 from August 2021, entitled How to Survive Acquiring a $3.5 Million Flooring Business. Chris Edwards, welcome back to Acquiring Minds. Will, how you doing, man? <laughs> Good. Good to hear your voice again. Uh, Chris, you were on, your episode aired last August, August 2021, so about 14 months ago. And you had acquired a flooring business in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Uh, and I, we're not going to be able to rehash the entire episode. I will, of course, link back to that for people to refer to. But um, we just really want a uh, quick update on how things have gone in this, uh, in this last year, 14 months since we spoke, Chris. Why don't you um, give me just 30 seconds, a uh, quick refresher on the, on the acquisition itself, what you bought, what you paid, all the, all, kind of all the relevant bullet points, and then, and then tell us, you know, give us an update 14 months later. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I bought a 
about a three and a half million dollar revenue flooring business um, at the time. Um, bought it for about two and a half times SDE. Um, total purchase price was about $1.75 million. Um, funded it 80% SBA debt, 10% seller note, 10% equity. Um, and since then have been, you know, full-time operating this, this business. Um, we've grown it from about three and a half million to probably will come in a little bit less than 5 million this fiscal year. Um, so we've grown it quite a bit, um, been able to maintain healthy margins. Um, SDE has expanded, um, <clears throat> been able to pay down, you know, my SBA debt, been able to pay myself, been able to, you know, do some, some distributions. Um, and I actually used the, uh, some of the cash from the business to buy a, uh, another business called Granite House, which is actually right next door to affordable flooring. Um, so it's a granite countertop fabrication and installation business. Um, we mm -hmm. mostly do quartz and natural stone, but it's a uh, really complimentary to what we do at the flooring store. A lot of customers that are, um, that are looking at flooring are also considering redoing their counters and vice versa. So, um, it's been a little, it's been a nice little tuck in acquisition. It did about a million of revenue last fiscal year. I think we're on track to probably do around 1.5. So it's definitely smaller than the, than the flooring store, but, um, still is a nice little business in its own right. So when you refer to the $5 million that you're targeting for growth, that's just affordable flooring. That's not the mm -hmm. granite business. So together it'll be, if you hit your numbers, it'll be six and a half million dollars of revenue that you're doing across your two businesses. Yeah, something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, Chris, that's phenomenal. Congratulations. That sounds like it's been a really good year. Chris, I want to reflect back on your interview from last August. You know, you used this phrase that I then uh, used and reused about the bloody knife fight that is small business ownership. Um, mm -hmm. And that I was I was quite early to uh, learning about this world myself, and um, and probably uh, was among people who idealized the idea that you can go out and buy a business. And it was people like you um, pointing out that operating a small business is very uh, different, probably than than any other professional work that you might might be coming from. Um, and uh, you had said that the, the first six months in the seat as the owner of affordable uh, flooring warehouse were the hardest six months of your life easily. Um, but when we were talking, things, you you started, you, you were starting to feel like you were getting your arms around the business um, and that you'd kind of come out the other side. You, you, were, you were not coasting by any means, but you felt like the worst was behind you. Can you kind of reflect back on that and, and maybe respond to everything I just said? 14 months older, wiser, grayer? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was just joking with my wife last night that you know, I've had a couple of people like ask how old I am, whether like they, they, they'll just be like, you're in your forties. Right. And I'm like, I'm 32. <laughs> so I think I've aged quite a bit, um, operating this thing. Uh, I got a little bit darker bags under my eyes and uh, maybe I'm just a little bit more jaded overall, but, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it, it still is a bloody knife fight. You know, it still is hard. You know, it's not, um, it's, uh, it's still a, a challenging thing to, make this thing hum at a high level. So, you know, I feel like it's, it's one of those things where small businesses never, never, um, shorts you on opportunities to challenge yourself. Um, so it, it still is, it still is challenging. I still have a lot of, you know, moments where it's really difficult, but 
Um, it's gotten a lot easier. I don't, um, I don't stress as much. I, I feel like I'm able to take the punches a lot better. Um, you, you, it could, because they just keep coming, you know, they just, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but it just feels like whenever you feel like you got things under control, there's something that's there to smack you down and, <laughs> and, and humble you. Um, so, um, overall, like it, it's gone well, it's gone, um, better than I forecasted or anticipated. You know, when I was looking back at kind of like my financial modeling of what I thought I could do with this business, um, I exceeded those, which is, you know, really positive. Um, I've, you know, I feel like this is a really great lifestyle decision for me long-term, um, even though it is difficult. And I, there are times where I wish I was kind of back in my consulting lane where I'm just kind of doing projects and there's not a ton of pressure, especially not like putting my financial, you know, not on the line, but, um, you know, overall it's, it's been, it's been good. Um, the bloody knife fight persists, um, (laughs) you know, between customers and, you know, employees and, um, you know, suppliers, there's always something to keep you on your toes. So there's never, you can't really just take a breather. Um, and, and at least I haven't been able to, to the, to the degree that I hope I could five years from now. Um, so it's been, it's been pedals to the metal. I mean, I'm working, I'm working seven days a week, basically. Um, I take a day off here and there, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's intense, but overall, if you're asking me, would I do it again? Would I go back 14 months or whatever it was, 16 months and and do it again? I would say yes. Great. And did, do you, I don't recall if you anticipated working seven days a week. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think um, it. I, I probably was somewhat expecting that, um, but yeah, it, it's gotten. I would say it's gotten better over the last probably six months. Now that it, it's not like I'm working seven days a week, you know, twelve hours a day. I, I'll, I'll come in on Saturdays and Sundays and work for three hours each. You know. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah. So there's there is some flexibility. I don't want to make it sound like I'm always working, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I have a pretty, pretty, uh, I, I would say I was working those hours even when I was at consulting to some degree. Okay. So I wouldn't say it's changed like a ton, but um, I, I am definitely working pretty hard still. Okay. Well, one of the things that you had your eye on, as so many people, acquisition entrepreneurs do, maybe all of them, is eventually being able to put in an operator so that it's not, you know, that you're not you're not, you're not engaging in the knife fight yourself. You're paying somebody else to do that. Of course, that is the the, the hope and the dream and um, way easier said than done. Yeah. Do you feel now 14 months later that you're any closer to that? Or does that still seem like a a, a distant dream? I wouldn't say it's a distant dream. I would say it's still, I would say it's a more like medium term type of dream, not long-term or short-term. I, I, I definitely am like, you know, doing, a, a ton of different things here, making the whole thing run. But um, yeah, I, I would say it's getting closer. I've had some interviews with some operators that I've, I've tried to bring on and for every reason didn't work out. So um, probably one thing that I would, you know, coach myself on if I were an outside consultant would be to, you know, start hiring and focus on that more. My, my wife is constantly in my ear about making, about trying to find someone to help me out and, an operator to come in and, and make this thing go. So that, that's definitely 
a a a big next step for me. Um, yeah. And uh, but right right now, I feel like I'm a little bit of a control freak too much. Um, you know, I, every single dollar that comes in and out of the store, I'm looking at. Um, yeah. And uh, so I, I need to let up the reins a little bit. I need to get better about hiring if I'm going to take kind of the next step and what I believe uh, my career path should look like. So that's something I need to focus on. Interesting. So it sounds like it's not the, like the like the business and your ownership of it is at a place where where in theory you could hire an operator. It's more like a, a psychological barrier uh, that you have <laughs> that you're just you're just you know this this giant financial swing that you've taken. You're not yet ready to entrust it in in, in somebody else's hands. Yeah, I mean, I I think yeah for sure. I, in uh, as as you know, really, what the the best thing about this game is that time is on my side. Um, that as time goes on and as I continue to, you know, generate cash flow and pay down debt, I'm less and less leveraged and less and less, you know, at risk of something really bad happening. Right. So like, totally. I feel like, you know, once I kind of hit the like two year mark, it's like, okay, I've, I've generated a lot of value. I've, I've created a lot of value. Um, you know, the risks that I was worried about a year ago have largely been mitigated. You know, the, the risk of going BK is virtually gone. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not to say that I would get complacent, but once you, now that I feel like I'm continuously de-risking, de-risking, then I would be able to feel more comfortable, you know, um, entrusting someone to operate my baby, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, sure. And and just so I understand, is there something I, I totally get the idea that the you know the more of your debt that you pay down, the more out from under any you know gun to your head you are uh, financially speaking. But but is there something at after t- only two years? It seems like you know that you you'd still you know I'm sure you still have a very hefty SBA payment. What what has happened that has made you that much so much more comfortable? Oh, I guess also you, you've increased revenue a lot, so you have that much more cash flow to pay down the debt. So that that must be the the breathing room you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And, and just like you know, having like the, the having like that sort of track record of you know financial performance. Like now that I've seen it and I've seen it replicated over a, an extended period of time, it's like one year is great, but then like okay, let's do it again for a second year. And so I, I, that it's, it's kind of arbitrary. I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I would say like, you know, two years of like strong operational performance is, you know, it, it, it de-risks me. I pay down debt. I've got more working capital in the business. You know, it feels like, okay, like there's, there's a buffer here that I can work with to, yeah. you know, take a bigger, um, step and, you know, hire an operator or whatever the case yeah. may be. So, you know, and, and I, now, now that I've, now that I've, now that we've grown and we've you know SDE has grown, you know the the multiple that I bought it at is sitting at like you know two times right. So it's like okay, I've largely basically created the value of what I bought it for um, in two years, right? So that's uh that's kind of how I I'm just kind of arbitrarily thinking about it. Yeah, that that's phenomenal, Chris. Um, yeah, and and I, and I guess experience itself um, is is kind of give one gives one confidence. So you've been in the seat for two years, and you just you feel like you 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 got your arms around things. You understand it's still hard, but like you're no yeah. longer green. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. One more one more question before I let you go, Chris. You yeah. uh, 
one of the big challenges that you had when you got in there is by your own admission, you tried to implement changes too quickly, which is I've now learned is kind of a classic uh, acquisition entrepreneur uh, rookie error. You know, they have all these ideas for for things that they want to change and, you know, introduce all those things on day one and people and their new employees freak out. And that 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 bit you in the butt a little bit as well. Um, but uh, so have you now had the chance to implement some of that stuff and and how how do you think about um you know the, the change management that you've that you've uh led here for the last 14 months yeah for sure i mean definitely has uh that's been we, we, we've been really focused on operational improvements especially i would say the last like nine months um you know our, our quoting process is much more efficient our our inventory management our um, you know, accounts receivable, accounts payable, much more efficient. You know, we've hired outside, um, offshore resources to help out with the business. Um, technology implementation, um, has, has gone well since I think we last talked, you know, there's some hiccups there, but, um, the adoption of sort of the, the new technologies and systems that we, that I brought to the table have been mostly well received. Um, so yeah, I, I think, um, you know, the first, you know, I think when we, when I first started doing these changes, I was probably like three months in and it was, it was just yeah. too early. I was still learning. Yeah. Um, yeah. and I still am, I'm always learning, but, um, now that like kind of had that operational experience and have some reps under my belt, um, it's easier to make changes and bring new ideas to the table and get buy-in. Um, now that I've kind of hopefully earned the respect of, uh, the employees and the people that are ultimately using these tools. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, makes sense. Well, Chris, yeah. I don't want to keep you. Uh, th this was an awesome update. I'm so thrilled to hear that things are going so well and you've got so much confidence you're buying buying out your next door neighbor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that, that's really that's really cool. I'm sure that's a story in its own right. But I, I want to keep this short and sweet. Thank you, sir, for coming back on. Congratulations on your success. And, and maybe we'll talk again in, in 2023. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Well, Appreciate your time. I hope you enjoyed that catch up with Chris. Here's the second mini interview with Philippe van der Hoydonk. Philippe's was episode five from May 2021, entitled How to Acquire Your First Business in Three Months. Philippe van der Hoydonk, welcome back to Acquiring Minds. Thank you very much for having me. Philippe, we recorded your episode in May 2021, so almost a year and a half ago. You had acquired Pets International a B2B media business for professionals in the pet industry. So I want to spend a few minutes with you hearing how things are going a year and a half later. Can you share with us kind of big picture what life looks like at Pets International now in October 2022? Yeah, for sure. I think since we last talked, um, a number of things have changed. Um, I've hired some people um i think at the beginning for a long time i was doing a lot of things by myself obviously with like a, a big team of freelancers but a lot of the core things i was doing by myself uh i have now two team members about to hire someone uh like a third person so that is growing uh we've done a major uh, sh uh transition through to a new crm system so we've Previously had like a custom built uh, one. Now we've moved on to something else. That has 
98% complete. There's been a lot of work, but it's almost done. Uh, we've done a new website, a redesign of the magazine. Uh, yeah, quite a lot of things. Okay. And overall, I mean, you're hiring. That's always a that's always a positive signal. But how would you say things are going? I mean, how is the business performing compared to a year and a half ago? Uh, the business, so our, our fiscal year runs until June. So if we look at last fiscal year, we've grown... A little bit. I think going into this business, I knew it was not going to be like a high growth opportunity. It was going to be more like yeah. a pretty stable, uh, sizable business that um, had some room for growth, but not like 20% year on year uh, for the next decade or something. So there was some healthy growth, not too much. So everything is going in the right direction and according to uh, expectation, let's say. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, I would say that's, that's positive. I mean, your, your pro forma is playing out. Um, and, and Philippe, give us a, just re, a refresher on kind of the bullet points of the business, like more about what Pets International does, revenue and margins to the extent you can share that revenue mix. Cause you had a, a, a various, um, you know, you have a magazine, you have conferences, um, age of the business deal terms, just, you know, bullet points, if you would, to refresh yep. people's memory. Sure. Uh, so we've been around since 1988, uh, longer than I've been around, actually. Uh, <laughs> it's basically a B2B media business with a literal print physical publication as kind of like the flagship product, let's say. Uh, we do some online publications as well with a newsletter website. And then we organize events as well, uh, both in Europe and in China. Well, now, obviously, with COVID, uh, the China part is not happening as much um and then in terms of size we're low seven figures um and i think revenue split probably events would be maybe 35 percent of revenue and the the magazine and the online stuff would uh, be the remainder and the online the the magazine do people pay a subscription or is it just um sponsors is how you monetize it or both mm -hmm. It's both, but to the large extent, it's advertisers who uh, who pay the bills. Okay, and and you're Dutch. The business is Dutch. Um, and I'm Belgian, it, but, but yeah, close enough. <laughs> I, I think I made that mistake in our, on our original interview. I, I can't seem to uh, absorb this fact. Sorry. That's okay. You're Belgian, but you um, but you live in the Netherlands, and the yes. business is Dutch. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Let's see in 2023 if I get that right. Um, the but it but it is pets international so the the entire global pets industry is your target market so you have so you're shipping magazines all over the world yep okay okay great and is it is it more like are are most of your readers concentrated in say europe and north america versus asia or is it pretty evenly distributed or what it's an it's an english language magazine it's english language yep it's 50% in europe maybe a third in North America, and then a quarter or so in, or twenty percent or so in Asia, and then you have a few copies going to like South Africa or Argentina or Brazil, stuff like that. And these new hires, um, so sorry, you said two new hires and a, and two a so third far, on yeah. the way. Yep. Okay. And and what were the roles? Uh, so the first hire was an editorial manager to kind of take the content side of things off my plate uh, so that he he basically runs that. And then I have an operations manager who yeah, helps with kind of like the nitty-gritty stuff of all the other things. And yeah, the next person I'm looking to hire is 
a little bit, I guess, hoping that person to be the person who can replace my day-to-day completely, like all the things that I'm still doing. Uh, hopefully that person can pick that up and then I'm free to do uh, other things. And what what are the things that you're doing day-to-day that this person would take on? Um, sales. Sales, some of the sales management. I mean, we work also with agents, so kind of working with them uh, on the sales side. So marketing stuff, uh, the event stuff, I do a lot of that uh, still. Um, I guess those are the major kind of pillars, let's say. Okay, okay. Um, well, I... I if you make this third hire and that frees you up completely, that sounds like within two years, you will have kind of completed the, you know, you, you had envisioned bringing in, you know, people under you, an operator, obviously, you know, it's going to be more than just a single person, it sounds like three people, and then continuing on your way to buy more businesses and, and continue this path. It sounds like if you make this third hire, you'll kind of be there um, and you will be free to explore, you know, the next acquisition or I don't know, you'll have a lot of free time. Am am I right? And that's pretty cool to have done that in two years. August Felker is a two-time successful searcher. First with a traditional search fund. The second time around, he did a self-funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies, an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program. A great no-risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers. They've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher. Check out oberly-risk.com, O-B-E-R-L-E hyphen risk.com, link in the show notes. Yes, but at the same time, also pretty real, realistic about, um, yeah, I'm I'm not convinced yet that, I mean, it all depends on who you can find, right? Uh, if you find the right person who can actually take over, that will be great. So I, I think the scenario where I'm leaning towards more right now is to find someone who can take over my current uh, day-to-day uh, so that I can maybe potentially look at acquiring a different publication uh, to make the publication group, as you want to call, it, if you want to call it that, a little bit bigger, so we can, I don't know, get a full-time designer instead of like freelancer. I don't know, expand the team a little bit more and have a little bit of a bigger business, uh, and then that person would first run the the global pets and the pets international side of things in the beginning, and then could potentially move up to the next level once the integration of new publications have uh, been completed. I guess that's like right now the main thing I'm toying around with, uh, but I mean, let's say it all starts with finding the right people and actually uh, getting them up and running and then seeing how things go, I think. Sure. But it sounds like if you're able to do that, the next acquisition, it, you wouldn't then go out and buy some new unrelated business and kind of start building a holding company. You would buy a business in the in the pet space, in publishing, to grow the existing Pets International business. Um, depends. Uh, I think at, at first I was always like, okay, let's get just a completely different business because I also like to be involved in different businesses. Um, yeah. So... Right now, the thought would be to get another publication on board, whether that's in the pet industry or not. It doesn't really matter as much. Just to kind of centralize a couple of those, I guess, key um, roles in the in the publishing business, like 
editors, designers, uh, things like that. Yeah. So you, it, once you have a little bit of a bigger scale, you can just bring all those things together and you can save a little bit on cost as well. So you kind of net net uh, out, uh, come out a little bit better. Okay. Okay. So really it's kind of a, a way to um, save on overhead and, and, yes. and, and be able to have, yeah. Okay. Yep. And also to give it, I mean, once you find someone who, like an operator who would take over, it's all like, if the business is a little bit bigger, it also makes it more interesting for that person. You can find a big, like, I think you can find a better person even to, to sure. take over just because there's sure. more to manage and more to, more to do. Sure. Philippe, you were new to the pets industry uh, when you acquired Pets International and you heard from people in the industry that like, you know, this is an industry once you enter, you'll never leave. Uh, have you found, how have you found the pets industry? And, and on that, how have you found the media industry? Because, or the media business, I should say. Because um, you were also kind of new to, new to B2B media, um, media publishing. So take those two separately. Yep. Uh, so on the pet uh, side, it is a super fun industry. I think just being around pets or thinking about or like and just being involved with pets all day, I think that just makes people happy. And that really comes across in the way uh, people interact with each other, even if they're competitors in theory. It's, I mean, it doesn't really come off that way. Everyone's super friendly, super nice, kind of probably the friendliest and nicest industry I've ever been in. So from that front is definitely a, a very positive thing. Whether I'm never going to leave the industry, I'm not convinced about that. But I mean, let's see, maybe uh, uh, time will tell, I guess. Uh, sure. On the media and publishing side, uh, yep, definitely my first. Um, it's been interesting. It's, it has some, I guess there's no recurring revenue. There's no, like there's none of that here. Almost creating your product from scratch every single day because you have to create new content. So those are maybe, I guess, some of the more challenging aspects, but in a way that also keeps it interesting, especially creating a new product, like you can uh, evolve and make things better over time. Um, yeah. I don't necessarily know if, I mean, aside from if I would just expand the publishing business, um, I don't know if I would do it again if I, it, it all depends on what business you come across, but I don't know necessarily if media businesses are the best businesses you can, you can get into, but it's definitely not a bad business at all to, to be into, be in. So yeah, I think it's overall, it's been pretty interesting and pretty good. Well, it sounds like there's been some things you've uncovered about the media business since you've acquired one that was a little bit, you know, different than you've, than you'd predicted. Can you, can you elaborate on that? And, and, and just in general, if there are things about this entire experience of buying a business that have been, that, that are different than you, than you predicted, uh, can you share with some, with, with us, some of those things? Yeah, for sure. I think, um, if I'm honest, when I came into the business, I did not have like a massive growth plan or a strategic plan of, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is where the business is going. Cause as soon I was not looking for this type of business to begin with, but once it came, uh, once the opportunity came up, it just seemed like a very attractive, uh, opportunity. So I jumped on it and things moved pretty fast. So I didn't really have much time for big plans. Uh, but obviously even in that, like, I guess, limited time, you still form some ideas of what you think the business can do and where you think it can go. Um, I think just the constant need to find more advertisers is always, uh, I would not say a challenge, but it's always something that keeps you active, let's say. Uh, and I 
maybe underestimated that a little bit. And I think overall, that's not necessarily to do with the publishing uh, business or media business, but more just when I took over the business, I kind of had to start this team from scratch. I mean, we had like a core team of freelancers that have still been with us since that, uh, since the beginning, uh, or maybe since the past 10 years or so. So that team has always been stable, but the, the people that I hired is basically the team I had to start from scratch. If I would do something again, I would probably, or if I would start over, I'd probably start hiring sooner, um, just to move a little bit faster, let's say. Okay. Okay. But the hiring that you have done, um, this is all coming out of, I mean, the, the, the business can support that and still pay you the salary that you want and, and need. Yeah. Yeah. I think before I took over the business, they were including the previous owner, four people working in the business. Um, and just for whatever reasons, like at the, when I started, I kind of started with a, with a clean slate so I could really build my team uh, from scratch. So now we're three people instead of four uh, previously, which ah. yeah, gives, gives definitely plenty of room to, uh, to cover my salaries. So when you bought the business, there were four people working in it. And on day one, you were like, I'll just be by my, just do all of it by myself. Uh, no. So the previous owner had kind of decided before the acquisition that she, uh, that the, the pre the original team was kind of let go. I mean, they were just going to look for new challenges. So I came into the a business where there were no full-time employees anymore. Okay. Okay. But only very recently had that, had those folks left. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, one of the things that you were looking for in a business to acquire, Philippe, was was location independence. Uh, you are speaking to me from Lisbon, so you're yep. not uh, you're not at home in the Netherlands. So yep. has has it checked that box? This business? Yeah, definitely. I mean, even most of the team, uh, like the like the my full time employees and the freelancers, they're almost all of the are, the majority of them are in the Netherlands as well. But we're just remote, like we don't have an office that we go to every day. Uh, so whether I'm in Amsterdam or I'm here in Lisbon, it kind of doesn't matter. Yeah. And have you taken advantage of that a lot? Or is this this trip to Lisbon your first kind of time doing this? This is honestly the first time. <laughs> oh, good. Well, good. Perfect timing then for, for this for this conversation. Exactly. Um, so just to, to wrap up, Philippe. Um, you know, in our in our first interview, we talked a lot about your your discovery of acquisition entrepreneurship, finding Walker's book, buy then build. Uh, how do you feel overall about acquisition entrepreneurship as a path? Yeah, now that I think you've done it? I think for the right person, it can definitely be. I mean, for me, it's I think the perfect fit. Like I am not so great at starting things from scratch, and I'm better at. Um, getting my hands on something that's actually running that is uh, already doing well and then just improving that uh, and growing it further. So I think that's where I'm most happy. Um, and it's difficult to get that into that position if you're not just buying the business. I mean, you can kind of crawl your way into like a CEO role or whatever to get there, but that obviously takes much longer and it's a different trajectory. So for me, this has been kind of the perfect, uh, perfect way to get here. Great. And and so you it sounds like you would do it again. Maybe you would refine what you bought. You've learned things about the media business that, you know, maybe you you might be a little bit more uh, circumspect if you were to buy look at buying a media business again. But the idea of buying a business as your path to entrepreneurship, you would do that again. Oh, yeah, definitely. Cool. 
All right. Well, let's leave it there, Philippe. Thank you very much for coming back on. I'm so pleased to hear that things seem to be, you know, going going really well and and it, it, it going according to your plans. So um, continued continued good fortune with the business. Yeah, thank you very much. That was nice catching up. Sure. Next up, number three, Cassie Niekamp. Cassie's episode was buying a $1.2 million fencing business and earning trust quickly. That's episode 17 from August 2021. Here she is. Cassie Niekamp, welcome back to Acquiring Minds. Thank you, Will. Great to be here. Cassie, we recorded our episode in August 2021, so a bit over a year ago. Two months prior, you had acquired Bowden Fence, a 38-year-old fencing business in Columbus, Ohio. So I want to spend a few minutes with you hearing how things are going 14 months later. So can you can you start us off, Cassie, with kind of a kind of big picture what life looks like at Bowden Fence now in October 2022? Life is full at Bowden. And so we are almost 3Xing our revenue, which is really great. Yeah. It has put stress on our systems and our processes, which has felt uncomfortable at times. Um, we've added people. And I think that we are at the point right now where people are really gelling in their role. We're really got our hands around. We launched a new um, software back in the spring, back in April. Um, in some ways, it feels like we've had this software for 10 years. In some ways, it feels like we just launched it yesterday because there's still some bumps that we're trying to, you know, edges we're trying to soften there. Um, so the software allowed us to do more project management, um, sales, CRM and project management in one. So um, life is feeling full. We're kind of we're kind of busting at the seams and seeing where in our processes we still have yet to iron out. Okay, great. Well, I want to dive into that, but before we do, give us uh, a quick reminder on more about Bowden Fence, what you bought. So you know what the business is. You know a little bit more about like fencing, residential. Is it residential, commercial, and so on? Revenue, yes. whatever you can share about revenue. Uh, the revenue, um, any kind of mix, is it, is it construction? Is it maintenance? Um, age of the business, we already said it's 38 years old, but anything there. And then uh, size, number of employees, and then, and then your deal terms, if, you're, if you can even remember that far back at this point. So just a refresher. Yeah. We had bought a 38-year-old um, business. It was fencing, and they did both residential and commercial. And what is really nice kind of about that mix is you can ride a bit of the recession, uh, the bull and bear markets, if you will. Um, and so we like that 50-50 diversification in terms of commercial versus residential. It's something we still are trending towards, that same mix, which is great. Um, so it was owned and founded by one man, Terry Bowden, and he was 72 and he was ready to retire. And he has been nothing but the utmost of a gem in terms of supporting us. Doesn't mean that we haven't totally changed all of his processes or maybe the way he went about even estimating. We, there's almost no Terry thumbprint left in the business, I'd say. It's huh? really, I think the first year I felt a lot like an imposter. Like this was somebody else's business that I was showing up to work for every day. And I could see more of him than I could see of myself. Yeah. But it is so interesting to now go into our warehouse and see changes that we have implemented, which yeah. are just so, it's so rewarding. Um, so the way we went about the deal was we found it on Buy, Sell, Biz. 
And we did a SBA loan mixed with a seller carryback. Uh, and that's the way we went about financing the deal. Great. In terms of the revenue, so prior to us taking over, a peak year for them was about seven hundred and fifty to 800000 in revenue. Um, this year we'll hit $2 million. So we're on pace to, to hit that. And I think we're going to exceed it, actually. Um, Congratulations. So thank you. It's been a lot of hard work to get here. We've asked a lot of our team. We've asked part of that change management structure. I mean, we asked people to reevaluate their roles. We maybe hired them for one thing, but said, oh, wait, I got, you know, this moral has now morphed. And that's not easy. It's not easy to have that conversation. It's not easy to feel like, you know, I'm asking more or something different than what you thought here. How does that sit with you? Um, but that's kind of where we are today. Well, so judging by that in really phenomenal revenue growth, so is it fair to say that things are going well? Like you, you're older and wiser and, and maybe have a few scars, but like that sounds like things are going pretty great. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Things are going well. You're hesitating. There, there is nothing, and I don't want to paint a glossy coat over it because I feel like there are days where, let me go back. I did not sleep the first six months of taking over this business. I would wake my husband up in the middle of the night concerned about something, whether it was a person, financial, a customer. Everything felt so fresh, so fresh, so new. And I wondered what mistake I was making next. Yeah. And I recently read, actually just yesterday, this um, really interesting article about making mistakes. And I think I didn't give myself enough permission to be messy, to make mistakes in that first, you know, year, six months. But the reality is we put our, we put our life savings on the line here. Like this is not, you know, just something that felt insignificant to me. This was something that was meaningful. I wanted to make my husband proud. He's my business owner for Pete's sake, but he's also my life partner. Um, I wanted to make my family proud. And to say that that was an insignificant investment that we made would be absolutely incorrect. Yep. So it felt like the weight of my sh the world was on my shoulders for the first six months. I didn't know anything about fencing. I came in completely naive, which in some ways... That was a that was a blessing. Um, and what has happened since that point is I have gotten experience. And there is no teacher-like experience. Yeah. And I think leaning into the uncomfortable of what experience can teach you is raw and it is hard, but you have to kind of enjoy that journey at the same time. Um, yeah, there's been a, a lot of growth, I think, personally. Yeah, yeah. Speaking about being completely new to the fencing business, so do you feel like a year, fourteen months later, have you have you learned the fencing business? Are you, um, yeah? Do you feel like you've kind of that piece you've you've mastered? I'm a little dangerous at this point. I think yeah? it's safe to say, Will. Um, <laughs> I still contribute to the sales. Like this is one of my big focuses for the fourth quarter is to really form more partnerships with contractors that we want to work with. And so um, it's something I haven't really been able to focus a lot of time with, some of that like top line level growth. It has been a lot of block and tackling. You know, we talk a lot about working in the business work versus working on the business. Sure. And I maybe had a slightly skewed vision of how long it would take me to really work 
on the business and get people fulfilled in their roles or really mature in their roles. I had a very big life personal event that happened this year that helped that. And I can go into further detail about that if you'd like. Sure. Yeah. What's that? Okay. Um, I had a baby Congratulations. in June. Uh-huh. Yes. So um, for those of you who maybe have missed our previous podcast, I think we talked about this. No, we did not. We didn't. We, we did didn't. not. Talk you may about have known. Because of- no, no, you wouldn't. No, no, because August to June. No, you would. Or I mean, it would have been yep, right around right. that time. Would have you would have been. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So picture this. I'm three months into running the business, the most stressed I've ever been in my entire life. My husband and I have been struggling with fertility for close to five years, and I find out I'm pregnant three months into running a wow. business. Wow. I'm not sleeping. How in the world does this medically add up? You know, only by the, the grace of God. So um, in the first year, in June, I knew that I had a very hard stop. I had brand new employees that were less than four months old. I had a leadership team that's, you know, very green. Um, if you can call it that, I'm, I'm involved in every yeah. leadership decision. So yeah. it's not like I have others to pass out things, but I had a young team and I had something, a very hard deadline. It wasn't like, hey, you know, this deadline, we're not really going to hit it. We're going to push it back to September. Well, that's not the way babies work. Uh, <laughs> so we essentially had a really beautiful push in our business to say, this has to happen. You have to feel good around this software that we just launched two months ago. You have to feel good about this role. And how would Cassie make decisions? How are you going to make decisions without Cassie present? And I will tell you that my husband stepped in. He ran um, his day-to-day. He does construction and development. Um, and he would come into the office from 6 to about 9 or 10 every morning and then do his job. 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. past that. Wow. So you want to talk about two tired puppies. It was, you know. And that was before, and that was, wait, so that was before the baby arrived or when you were on maternity leave? I worked up right until, I mean, I was on meetings having contractions. (laughs) Oh, wow. The day before my, yeah. I was like, hold on just a minute. And I turned my sound off and as we were going through next week's scheduling. So, um, wow, Cassie, what, what a war Mm -hmm. story. And, and what, what was your maternity leave going to be or what, what what did it end up being? We had kind of a two to three month hope. Um, you know, a part of me just felt so selfish around this time because I had waited so long for our family to expand that I wanted to be really protective of this. But what actually happened is our plan, as plans go, uh, you know, two to three months. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't realistic for the seasonality we were in. We were in peak fencing season. Q2 and Q3 is peak selling and peak installing season here in the Midwest. And I saw how depleted my husband was becoming. Like he was depleted. And he really tried to shield me for, from things, but there were also things he had to bring me in on. And I could tell it was very taxing on him. So uh, I ended up coming back, I think, at the seven-week seven mark, which oh. was fine, actually. The way we went about that is we remodeled the second half of our business, the second floor, floor rather. And um, I, I had a bassinet up there. I have a rocker. Like, it was – she came to work with me every day. Wow. And my team was super generous. And luckily, she's a great baby, so she barely made any noise. 
Um, but they were just really generous and they really flexed with me during that time. Yeah. You know, and they had questions like, what will this be like after returning leave? What will this be like X? And I said, guys, I don't know. I've never had a baby and ran a small business at the, <laughs> at the same time. This is called an FFT or a freaking first time. I don't know. <laughs> um, and they were more than generous, just very, very gracious. Well, obviously, that whole experience kind of flavors your entire first year in the business. I mean, it was it, a lot of it. It wasn't just your your typical transition. It was your transition plus <laughs> pregnancy and then maternity leave. So um, it, one of the things, Cassie, that was so um, that was a strong theme of our first interview was was your kind of vulnerable your vulnerability and how yeah. you mm-hmm. so like not coming in and not knowing anything about fencing. You didn't pretend to know anything. You just came in and you said, you know, I'm a student. I need for you to teach me. It sounds like your management style has continued to kind of be that way. You don't pretend to have everything perfectly planned out. You it seems like you really engage your team and say, Hey team, I'm going to, I'm going to need you to help me here. You know, uh, we're going to see how this goes. I can't promise how it's going to go. seems like, um, that has continued to be your style and that it, it that, that it really resonates with your, with your team. I think so. I think it was really important. I felt a, I think I shared this maybe, but I had a leader who, wanted to feel as though they knew everything before you even asked it. And I thought that it was just a missed opportunity to really connect with the team around, hey, I don't know that answer, but I'm going to hunt it down for you so we are better equipped to to tackle it. And came at it from a, a partnership perspective versus I hold all the answers. I'm rarely wrong perspective. Um, that's that was really important to me in a leader. And yeah. I observed what I would feel would be the opposite way of, of how I'd like to be led. Yeah. Cassie, uh, you weren't yet paying yourself uh, when we when we spoke. Are you paying yourself <laughs> now out of the proceeds of the business? I'm paying myself. It is a modest, um, I think I might be the least uh, paid person on our team, um, but I'm paying myself. And it's, well, great. you know, and the reality is, is, we want to be focused on the long game and the long-term investment while having substantial cash flow. And the thing that has surprised me a lot in the construction world is as a growing business, how much cash flow is really impacted by that. Um, it, what resources it takes to run a business, you know, they pop up all the time. We've had just about every truck in the shop this past month, and those are unexpected you know, expenses. However, they come out of our bottom line. And when you read a P&L coming into a business, you don't feel the emotion behind that. Oh, we were down a truck. Therefore, we lost productivity. Therefore, you know, we're at the whim of the mechanic. Those are the things that you don't read on the P&L as it feels or reads in real life. And um, cash is king. You know, you, you have to be really aware of your cash flow and AR collections in order to feel very healthy about the business as it moves forward and grows. So it's so funny that because I I hear people talk about it all the time, say this all the time, and it's people who probably had already heard it themselves. But but speaking to your point about like experience versus kind of academic knowledge, it's like only really when you've been in a business and responsible for a P&L where mm-hmm. cash flow cycles can be tricky and tight, do you really mm-hmm. kind of do you really internalize this mm. the 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 complexity and the and the delicacy that is 
cash flow, at, at least in a business that where, where cash flow is, is tricky. So. Correct. Yeah. Um, Cassie, we're, we're bumping up on time, but I, I just want to get to, you know, it, it, you mentioned that you've made a lot of changes. You put in new software, you move people around in roles, you ask people to step up. Um, and obviously that you've gone from $800,000 to 2 million on track to $2 million in revenue. So, um, are those all, all those changes, are those what led to the bump in sales or more than a bump? I should say the surge in sales. I think a couple of things. I think that we had a marketing plan. So we got a new website. We invested in digital marketing. We focused on our Google reviews. Uh, along with, we hired a second salesperson. So never before had we delineated between commercial and residential sales. That was big for our business. So it was an additional overhead investment bringing on a second salesperson. Um, but, you know, it's, we're, we're doing some 2023 uh, planning this, this month, and it's so exciting to see how these two have really corresponded together in terms of numbers and goals and activity. And it's really working. So that's really fun. Um, I think that's a big, a big part of our, our growth has been the marketing as well as the second salesperson and getting the right salespeople on board. There was a, um, I used to hire for a living in terms of, of recruiting. So the first hire I made was a colossal mistake. Oh. And talk about experience. You know, I felt like I got road rash from that one. Um, <laughs> It, it just was not a good fit. And so therefore, getting the right salespeople on board, and I feel like we have an awesome team um, right now ready to charge. So keeping them engaged, keeping them um, really purposeful at work, keeping you know their hopes and goals on their one precious and short life alive here at Bowden, that's really important to me too. Speaking of purpose, Cassie, you when you were telling me about your motivation to go out and buy a business in our in our interview, you had said that it was kind of, you were experiencing a crisis of purpose in your professional life. <laughs> kind of like, what <laughs> what is the best use of my talents? Presumably, you didn't feel like you were you were you were using your talents to the, to, to the, at their utmost. And you landed on buying a business as kind of as fixing that problem. Has it been the has it solved the crisis of purpose? Has it given you a sense of purpose that you were that you kind of felt you were missing before you got into this endeavor? I think that my purpose is I would define it as using the using the highest and best purpose of my talents. And if I am not learning and growing and being stretched as an individual, I feel like that is a not good use of my time. I want to be stretched. I want to grow. And I think during that time when I had that aha moment before buying the business, it was like a mirror was being held up to me saying, are you growing? Are you learning? Are you stretching? Or are you playing it safe? I can fully share with you that there is not a week that goes by that I am not surprised at something of the business or that something does not go smoothly here. So in terms of growing and learning and sharing, you know, it's what I found is absolutely I'm on the path to my purpose. Does it feel like that every day? Um, no, it feels like oftentimes I'm, I'm a fencing contractor and I'm going to work in a, on a job site. Um, 
But there's this moments between kind of stepping out to the big picture and realizing what our long-term goal is versus the day-to-day. They're two, they're two worlds apart. What has helped tremendously is kind of forming these small groups of people who are in your corner when you can't relate with your team. So I have, you know, business owners across the country that I speak with regularly about, you will not believe what happened today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's really this um, feeling of that vulnerability, back to that vulnerability you're sharing. Like we're over trying to sound cool or act cool or, you know, I made this great investment. It's you will not believe what happened today. <laughs> Can you relate? And there is an absolute like echoing back or, you know, motivation or a blog or a, a tweet that somebody sends to say, keep your head up. You know, we, we've been there too, or here's how I tackled it. And that is what is really surprised me the most about kind of this really cool community of owners. And it doesn't matter if you're running a website business, an e-commerce business. It doesn't matter if you're running an accounting business. There's relatability in a lot of small business aspects. Yeah. Speaking of being a fencing contractor, Cassie, you 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 know when you and your husband were considering making this move, you thought you know in the medium or long term the, the idea would be after you've grown the business and put in your systems and and so on that you would be able to step out and put in an operator mm-hmm. under you and it would become something mm-hmm. more where you're the owner but you're not in the business you're not even maybe on the business you're kind of more more mm-hmm. passive. Um, mm-hmm. How how close to to that reality uh, are you? Uh, do you, do you, could, do you see like the, you could put in somebody to replace Cassie in the near term, or is that still kind of a distant dream? You know, my, my timeline on that was a five-year goal. Yeah. And I still feel very good about it. Okay. I still feel very good about it. I think that maternity leave was something that expedited that in a more positive fashion than I ever could have imagined. So for instance, I think the business is ahead of year. Because of my maternity leave. Oh. I think that we were forced to make decisions, right or wrong, that needed to happen in terms of speed in order to get up to this point. So at the time when I'm thinking, what timing? Now I'm thinking, well, that worked out for the better. Um, you know, by the way, a baby is always a blessing no matter when they come. So, uh, but I think we're a year ahead in our business from where we could have been. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. What, what a great... I mean, not that you played it this way, but what a, what a stress test for the business, maternity leave. A stress test indeed. Um, yeah. Last question for you, Cassie. If you were um, talking to somebody who was kind of, who was saying to you, hey, I, I think I might want to go out and buy a small business, uh, become an acquisition entrepreneur, what, what would you say to them now about pursuing this path now that you've been on it for, you know, year and a half overall? This is not the answer I would have given when I talked to you 14 months ago, but I think it's finding that community. So the community I spoke with was small business owners across the nation. Some of them are fencing and some of them are non-related. So what my advice would be is to find online groups such as like Facebook groups or associations, pick out some of the top performers in those groups and make them your tribe. And um, one of the things that we did was we had a fencing conference through the American Fence Association in February. Went to the conference, obviously a newbie. Um, created like my own fence mastermind, which we meet monthly 
And there's 11 people that are mem like members of this little group. Um, it's completely like attend if you can, attend if you can't. Um, it's a Zoom attend call. If you can't. It's a Zoom call. Yep. And we share like, hey, we go around and we share what are your wins this week? What is not feeling like uh, is going well? And, you know, we have owners that are operating a $10 million business from scratch. We have owners that are operating a million dollar businesses that they're ramping up and just a year old. And what is so amazing is you can glean from all sorts of owners. We have owners in California, owners in Pennsylvania, um, Vancouver, Washington. And the things that they constantly are reassuring to me or sharing best practices, they'll share financials, they share documents, they share customer sign-off sheets terms of service, those things have been so, so valuable. And I think around the vulnerability, around being new in an industry I did not know, is I said, hey, I would love to share best practices. Are you open? I need some help. And people jumped on it in the most amazing way possible. There are such givers. That, that, so. what, a, what a great tip and what a great, you know, what great initiative on your part to put together that group. I'm sure it sounds just invaluable. Super invaluable. And there was this tweet from a business owner who took over a business in Colorado in like his first week. He said, I've never felt more lonely. And you will feel a version of that at least once a week, if not once a day. I have never felt more lonely. And it's because you second guess yourself. It's because there's hard questions that need answered. It's because there are people involved with different intrinsic motivations. Um, and you don't want to feel lonely because that's not very fun. So yeah. if you yeah. could come at it from a, you know, a community perspective, that's reassuring, gives you better ideas, expands your mindset as to what's possible. And it's frankly the way I prefer to do life. Let's leave it there, Cassie. What a, what a great insight and piece of advice for, for people out there who might find themselves in the seat like you are uh, in the months and years ahead. Thank you very much for coming back on, Cassie. What a great update, and congratulations on on the success. You you seem to uh, not want to say full blown. It's been you know we're we're crushing it, even though your numbers sure look that way. Um, but that's probably you know your wisdom talking, like not getting carried away with your with positivity and recognizing that every day there's a potential punch in the face to be had. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's talk again in a year and see how see how we're doing exactly. that. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks so much, Cassie. Congratulations. Thank you, Will. The next interview is with someone doing something a bit different. Andrew Pierno is building a micro-private equity fund. His was episode 25 in September 2021, How to Build a Portfolio of Micro-SaaS Businesses. Here's Andrew. Andrew Pierno, welcome back to Acquiring Minds. Thanks, Will. It's great to be here for the second time. Andrew, we recorded your first episode in September 2021, so just over a year ago, and you were acquiring a portfolio of micro SaaS businesses under the banner XO Capital. You'd done four acquisitions to date. And for many indie hackers and online entrepreneurs, a portfolio of micro SaaS businesses sounds like the dream, sounds like the dream. Uh, so I was really eager to learn all about EXO. And today I am super eager to hear how things are going now, a year later in October 2022. Uh, but before we get into that, Andrew, why don't you just give everybody a quick refresher on EXO Capital, kind of what the vision is, why micro SaaS, your thesis, et cetera. 
Sure. So I, Exo Capital is, you could think of it as a micro private equity company. We buy small software companies. Um, there are a number of reasons why you might buy a software company. We buy them for cash flow, though. So the idea is that we're acquiring cash flow. Um, people do this with offline businesses or if somebody wants to buy a laundromat or a storage unit, et cetera, we're just doing it with software. That just happens to be my background and, and what I know best. Um, there's a ton of people doing it successfully in e-commerce, et cetera, but we've just stuck to SaaS. So yeah, we buy wholesale companies. We buy a hundred percent of them. Um, and we take over operations. Sometimes those businesses come with people at the scale that we're doing things at oftentimes they don't. Um, and so, although it may sound like the dream, it is, it, it's, uh, there are particular kinds of headaches that come with operating a portfolio, namely context switching. Um, almost always you have to have shared resources. So we're now up to five full-time people, excluding myself. And, um, we've bought six total. We've sold two now and we're currently operating four. So we've continued to buy slightly larger businesses, but the thesis remains the same, which is sort of a non-thesis, an opportunistic thesis, I should say, around just acquiring pure SaaS businesses or as close to pure SaaS as we can get. Because the second you just you say SaaS or pure SaaS, um, once you actually get in, there's all different kinds of SaaS, right? Not everything is because it has software is automatically you know, 90% gross margins and, and, you know, totally automated and, and all of these things that people typically associate with software businesses. Sure. Well, um, despite the, the thesislessness uh, or the opportunisticness, opportunistic nature of the thesis, um, it did feel like you had a, a strategic target on micro SaaS. So quite small companies with quite small MRR. Um, was that an explicit thesis or, or what? Why, why were you playing there? And are you still? So at the beginning, the, uh, I wouldn't, uh, calling it a thesis is a little bit more grandiose than it was, right? We were just buying stuff with our own cash. We only had so much of it. And so, yeah. Hey, micro SaaS, it's like SaaS, but smaller. Great. That's what our budget is. Awesome. Exactly. Um, yeah. so, but at the same time, I still feel like despite us having moved upstream to start buying businesses that like our most recent one was like mid six figures. So these aren't, these aren't like tiny little things anymore, but they're in the grand scheme of things, um, not very big acquisitions. I still feel like there's a huge opportunity to be the de facto acquirer of SaaS companies doing sub 10K MRR. I just think that there's still, that opportunity still exists. We have been focused on the past year of trying to buy slightly larger things. Um, there's a whole bunch of, of headaches that go away when you start to have a little bit more cash flow to play with. Namely, you can hire people, uh, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And that's really difficult to do until you hit a critical mass with a little portfolio. Um, the kind of downside of, of doing that is that um, when you tend to buy larger businesses, oftentimes, and I, I would call this a mistake that we've made too, is that um, the surface area of the products is sort of dictates what kind of resources you're going to have to put into the business. So concretely, let's take two examples. One is a B2B SaaS company that sells more towards enterprise customers. So enterprise customers, um, albeit oftentimes they're quite lovely, right? They'll, they'll write a $25,000 check and, and not even blink and they're never late and then they never ask any questions. However, the demands on the product from their perspective are an order of magnitude more than let's say some of our smaller companies like Sheetbest or Screenshot API that have 
I like to call it one promise to the customer. They kind of do one small thing. So when I say we don't have a thesis, what I actually mean is that um, I don't know that we have the ability to execute fully on the thesis that we would like, but if I could kind of congeal it into uh, you know a few sentences, we look for now product-led growth type companies, i.e. a company where you can, um, the, 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 the path towards getting a customer to sign up to the product, they sign up for a free trial, right? There's some conversion rate there. We try and optimize that out of the free trials, uh, some amount convert. Um, right. That that's kind of a product led growth type, uh, motion as opposed to an enterprise type sale where I need to go and build relationships for six to nine months. That's how long these deals take. There's a smaller number of them, but they're often higher touch. So I have to staff a particular kind of person, typically a salesperson or a BDR, an SDR, somebody like that. Um, it just, those two businesses, um, put strain on our shared services model. And so at the moment, we're leaning more towards these kind of product-led growth companies where there's like a freemium and a free trial and a conversion, um, because then we can start to really operationalize top of funnel activities like content. How do we bring people to the site, et cetera? Um, what are our conversion rates? Okay, well, how do we increase those conversion rates? What kind of, um, what kind of drip emails can we send after they sign up to get them to take particular actions in the app so that they become activated, right? Um, Slack has, I, I think they're, they're like golden metric for when they know a customer is going to stay long-term is having sent like a thousand messages in Slack. Um, mm -hmm. same with Facebook had this early on. If you got 10 friends, you were way more likely to be a kind of a lifetime Facebook user. Um, yep. and so these product led growth type companies, we can, you, we can, um, kind of operationalize content, right. Then we can operationalize the funnel in between, but we don't have to do kind of hand to hand combat like we do for um, an enterprise company. So we currently have one of those enterprise companies and it's just been enlightening to see, um, how much of a tax that is operationally. However, we closed one customer and it paid for the entire acquisition. One customer yeah. paid for the entire acquisition. That's never going to happen with a $10 or $20, even $30 a month kind of, um, freemium type software company. Like it just, it just won't. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I, I think about when I hear this product-led versus kind of enterprise sales, um, one of the other, maybe you're kind of saying this, but one of the other things that people talk about is enterprise sales basically requires more butts and seats. You know, it requires a sales team, more humans in your operation. Um, as you said, more, much more relationship building. It's really your, your, sales, your sales function becomes with the revenue driver versus yep. uh, the product led growth is is much more of kind of the the kind of the again dream in quotes uh, SaaS business where there's very little you know human interaction and you know the thing is just a black box that spits off money dream yep. um, but you know I, I want to tie this actually into uh, something you said at the end of your September update you you by the way I want to encourage the audience to check out your blog you're a prolific. Uh, blogger putting great uh, great content about you know the inner workings of XO. Um, your most recent blog update in September, you talk at the end about remote work, and how um, your, your your remote work is kind of kind of getting to you. I mean, we all recognize what the pros of it are, but uh, the cons of it are you 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 seem to be missing a little bit of that human interaction, um, and you like the idea of of going into an office, um, and you know it it, it strikes me that um, an enterprise sales team, there's, there's a lot of camaraderie in a sales team. Um, so that cultural aspect might actually be more of a fit for where your head is at 
uh, with, with an enterprise sales SaaS versus the, the micro SaaS businesses. I, I, might, I might be reaching here, but do you want to react? I, I, I don't know if it matters so much what is happening inside of that, let's call it a shared space. The office has, has you know, kind of all this, these negative terms. Um, I think what was missing or what is missing is just the, the team building and just kind right. of the shared sharing wins and sharing losses. It's not so much like a, uh, of course, camaraderie is a part of it. And I know what you're saying with the sales team where, where it's like a tight knit group and they often have like their own kind of subculture within a company. Um, I'm still thinking logistically how I could do this without raising capital. And I'm not sure how I would do those enterprise deals without raising capital, right? They're just a lot more capital intensive. Um, yeah. I'm going to have yeah. to sit on the salaries of several um, salespeople before their initial deal closes and they pay for themselves. And that's just tough to do with a bootstrap business. But I should clarify, I, I want it to be my office that I go into. I don't want to go into <laughs> like somebody else's office. I want it to be like this optional thing, right, where it's like a real... Um, a real place where you can just escape, you know, the box that we've all been living in for the yeah. past two years. Or, I mean, I'm in California, so I've been in, in a box uh, for a long time, um, meaning we've, we've been, you know, COVID restricted for, for a long time. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I just uh, I just wanted to acknowledge that for me, after reflecting on the past two years, just being um, in an office kind of by myself, that like it kind of sucks. And yeah, uh, totally. there's parts of being in an office that I just, just absolutely miss. Yeah, yeah. I second that. Andrew, the, um, uh, let's circle back to you guys uh, going up market a little bit. Um, is that, I think you're also working on an SBA finance deal, correct? Correct. Okay. So you hadn't done one of those when we spoke last. And for my audience, this is really going to resonate because many of uh, my audience are not SaaS acquirers. They're, buy they're buying services businesses, you know, f physical businesses. And the SBA is, is, used by them almost across, you know, almost without exception. Um, sure. But you can't, you typically can't do that in a SaaS deal because SaaS multiples are so high uh, for, for a couple of main reasons. For, SaaS businesses are too expensive for, for to, the SBA to pencil out, SBA loan to pencil out, A. And B, often the SaaS businesses are so young, uh, SBA doesn't like to see, you know, hyper growth in, in the last two or three years. They actually, actually, too much growth and too little time can be something the, that the SBA frowns upon. Um, and that can often be the nature of SaaS businesses, much more e-commerce businesses, but also in, in SaaS businesses. So anyway, how is it that you found uh, a SaaS business to acquire with an SBA loan? I know it ha the deal hasn't occurred yet, but like shed some light on this particular deal. Yeah. And I don't know that it will. And I'm going to have to talk in abstracts because again, it hasn't closed and, um, yeah. you know, I don't want to, I don't want to overshare how I was outrunning it by the seller. But so... Yes, we found a deal. It came in through my network. Um, it's an off-market deal. I don't know that it will actually go on market if it doesn't work out with us in the SBA. Um, it is in the low seven figures, so it's it's far too much cash that we don't have that on hand. Um, so the first problem we encountered was they were the, the financials weren't straightforward. The uh, business had sort of a, a consulting piece, um, and it had the SaaS piece. And the first lender we approached told us last week they can't do the deal. And the reason is, is they can't uh, pull out the consulting fees from the SaaS fees. And from my perspective, and again, this is, this is not a knock and this will probably come as no surprise to, to uh, people that have kind of 
looked at this a little closer than I guess we have, but um, that's called subtraction, right? If you take <laughs> this revenue that doesn't belong to this thing you're trying to buy, you just subtract it out. Um, you get compiled financials. That's the term. And that's the, those are, those are the real financials that you're trying to buy with the business. And the slender was unable to kind of see past this additional revenue coming through this entity. And we weren't buying the entity, right? This was an asset purchase. And so they just, they just said, no, this is too complicated for us. Mm -hmm. And that really struck me as kind of baffling. It's like, is there no, I mean, not only did we have to have all the stars aligned to have this deal kind of come into our little world and kind of like choose us, right. To carry this forward through the SBA, but but the financials also have to be like this, this perfect, pristine thing, which of course, like nobody's financials are. I mean, come on, mm -hmm. these are like small businesses. And so I, I, I was kind of like bewildered at the fact that they were unable to accommodate um, some uh, subtraction really into mm -hmm. their process for figuring out how to finance this deal, which was fully financeable. Like it, it looks great when you just look at the SaaS revenue. It's an awesome business. We're buying it for a good price. Like that service coverage ratio, all good. And they just couldn't mm -hmm. see past it. So we went to another lender. And again, this might come as no surprise, but it was shocking to me because I've spent, I don't know how many hours looking at this SBA stuff now, but the uh, there's not only a personal guarantee, but any loan above 350K, they are putting a lien on your house preemptively. So it's like, who's actually taking the risk here? The government uh, is is backing the bank right? And the bank is requiring a lien to fully collateralize the loan before you even get the damn thing, which I think is just extremely aggressive to put a preemptive lien on a house to fully collateralize the, the deal before they, before they give it to you. Mm -hmm. And so for us, that was, I mean, we're still chewing on that. Like that was a, a major blow to our conception of, of how we might use the SBA to, to grow. And that just feels like kind of untenable. Um, to to get a lien on the house to just get a loan just feels crazy. Yeah, and and the the preemptive lien on the house is that separate from the personal guarantee or is that kind of under yeah. the umbrella of the personal guarantee? Well, it's under the umbrella, but I mean it's a straight up lien. Like they, they yeah. you know, I, yeah. I don't even know how you would sell your house. Like you call your SBA lender and and ask them to take the lien off to go so, so you could sell the house. Like what a pain in the ass. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it just feels like I I had thought that the SBA was. Um, and maybe it's the, maybe it's actually not the SBA. Maybe it's the, um, the lenders, the banks, um, kind of underwriting these things. I just thought that there was a desire and an appetite to figure this stuff out industry-wide for software. Cause that would open up like a whole new can of worms for them. Right. In a good way. Right. It would, it would just increase the TAM of, of stuff they could lend against for the SBA. Yeah. And it, I just haven't felt, I haven't felt that, um, desire to, to try and figure out how to make stuff work. It's like the, the slightest speed bump and they're like, oh no, we can't. You want us to do subtraction? We oh, we can't do subtraction. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's discouraging. Um, because I, I agree with you. I would love to see SBA deals happen more commonly in in the SaaS and online businesses in general. Let's to close out here, Andrew. Let's hear just some more specifics on Exo Capital. So you had said you've done six acquisitions and two sales, right? So your your holdings were there were four businesses when we spoke then you've sold two and added two, so you're still at four. Uh, why did you sell the two that you did? First question. And then second question, if you can share some some growth and revenue numbers on the overall portfolio. Sure. Uh, so the first, I think last episode, we spoke pretty in depth about why we sold that initial business. Um, 
the the highlight of that was we had a different set of partners initially that didn't end up working out and one of those partners had brought that deal in and um it it's uh we couldn't figure out how to operationalize it we couldn't get the right developers to fix the particular problems that this application had that this particular person said would be you know easy to fix or that they had covered um and so we ended up selling it to a group that's since taken it and it's still it's still living and breathing today and it's even better. And those guys have done a great job with it after, um, after we sold it to them. The second business, uh, this one I'll admit was a straight up mistake. I bought it, uh, not so much in, in haste necessarily, but I was in love with, uh, the business idea and sort of let go of our, our fundamentals, right? Like, okay, we're buying cash flow, we're buying customers, maybe we're buying a little IP. Um, but mostly we're buying a foothold into a new market that we really like and, um, had an awful transition. Um, so awful. In fact, that all of the customers, all 100% of them were paused before they gave us the, um, the application gave us access to everything. And we could, rec we recovered zero of them, zero. And, um, wow. So you lost, so you bought a business with zero customers effectively. Yeah, effectively, effectively. Um, the reason they paused it is because, uh, they couldn't afford the, the, uh, the server costs uh -huh. during while we were transitioning. And I just was, uh, God, I just, I was, I was really upset. Um, mostly because they should have just pinged me. It was going to be like a grand. We would have, you know, it, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a lot of exactly. money to us. Like we would have happily just said, yeah, sure. Like, don't worry about it. Um, but anyways, it was from some kids in, at, at, in college and. Um, I think they had a falling out during this process too. And we were just the, um, you know, kind of, yeah, exactly. And so, so we ended up selling that it was fine. Um, that is also at a group now that is taking it and bring breathing life back into it. And, um, they're, they're kind of our venture backed company and, um, are giving it a life of its own now too. So uh, both instances have been really great examples of like, we were not a right, the right fit for it. Um, but it had almost nothing to do with the underlying asset. It was just our ability to go and execute on those two businesses in particular, um, wasn't very good. And so we just tried to recognize that as quickly as possible and, um, and, and sold them. But yeah, mm -hmm. so now fun stuff, we're currently yep. operating for, we have one kind of enterprise type company and three product led growth companies. We're doing 25,000 a month at pretty mm -hmm. high margins. We're still running profitably, even with five full-time people. We have two full-time software engineers, um, Danny, one of the partners at XO, he's full-time, um, and takes a salary from the business. Um, myself and the other partner do not, I, we're kind of like, I don't consider myself full-time on XO yet. I still have the, um, the, uh, marketing agency that that's still kind of, um, going and standalone and doing great as well. Um, we are at nine X for our first acquisition. The first thing we ever bought has grown nine X since we bought it. I was hoping I could come on today and say 10, but I can't. It's <laughs> well, still an impressive number. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. Great. So, so nine X on, on your highest growth acquisition and the others, do you continue to see growth or do oh, they yeah. kind of grow, grow on their own or are you, do you put marketing and content marketing into place for all of them when you acquire them? Yeah, so we now have a process. We've been working with a group that um, every single company gets one blog post a week that gets pushed out to different social media channels. We're starting to lock in on what we think product-led growth motions look like um, from top of funnel all the way to pushing people towards signups, all the way towards managing churn, um, 
So kind of full end-to-end life cycle, we're getting a much better sense of operationally what that looks like. And that is becoming what I see kind of for the first time, copy and pasteable towards the next acquisition. So every incremental acquisition, I don't have to go and figure out content again. I don't have to go and figure out um, all of these workflows and how to push people and increase conversion, et cetera, because we already have infrastructure for that now. And that's what makes me really excited about the idea of even just buying some more of these smaller type companies is we're starting to just get um, some real leverage out of having the shared service model, which frankly, at the beginning sucks because it's so much context switching. Nobody gets to focus full time on one thing and just do it well, right? Everybody's kind of bouncing um, between projects. But now it's just starting to feel like I see the light at the end of the tunnel, like, okay, after two years of doing this, I think I think we can say like, we almost know what we're doing. I could put this on a deck and speak to it and say like, yeah, with some confidence, I think we could repeat this over and over again. Well, and then that becomes kind of your your secret sauce, your, your playbook, kind of Vista style, you know, kind of recipe for success. So you can you can scale really at that point and, yeah. and be and be competitive, competitively differentiated from other people tr- do, trying to do what you're doing. Yeah, this is this is very secretive about, you know, their special little secret black right. cookbook, like, you know, black magic cookbook. But I, I'm going to blog about all this stuff and just say, like, listen, here's what we're doing. You could absolutely go do this today. I'm going to tell you two things. One is going to take a shit ton of time. And two is probably going to suck. There's no magic. <laughs> There's no magic. There's no such thing. I just don't believe in it. It's just hard work. Well, it you you um that was kind of your vibe last time. It feels like your vibe is the same today. That this is this is certainly not easy, uh, despite kind of how alluring the the vision of a portfolio of of micro SaaS and SaaS businesses is. But you do seem like you're very much committed to this path. Like you feel like it's working. You know, it's it's a slugfest, but it's working, and you know you'll be at it. Like you continue on what you're marching along with this with this with this venture and with this thesis or opportunity secretly i have ambitions to take exo public one day okay secretly so we're we're gonna try and yeah secretly announcing it on the podcast we're gonna try and bootstrap (laughs) to at least a million in arr uh before we raise any capital um and then we'll we'll kind of look at what it looks like from there but there's absolutely no reason why this can't 10x 20x 50x in the next couple years great well, let's 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 call it on that optimistic note. Andrew, thank you very much for coming back uh, and we look forward to the 2023 update. Thanks, well, appreciate it. Finally, we have Mike Bodkin. Mike actually appeared twice before on Acquiring Minds, having done a second acquisition only months after his first. The episodes were respectively number 7 in July 2021, How to Buy a Landscaping Biz and Boost Profits Quick, and number 35 from October how to buy landscaping businesses. Here's Mike. Mike Bakken, welcome back to Acquiring Minds. Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm super stoked to be here and congrats to you on your 100th episode. That's awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. You were three of those 100 episodes. So you are uh, the record holder, three-time Acquiring hey. Minds guest. There you go, Mike. <laughs> I got to get a plaque or something. Yeah, there you me. go. <laughs> Well, Mike, the first time I had you on was episode seven, way back in July of last year, July 2021. And we talked about your foray into acquisition entrepreneurship. You had acquired a a landscaping business in Florida, smallish landscaping business. Uh, we talked a little bit about the buy, buy small philosophy, which you embraced because it was a small acquisition. Your feeling was that it got you, it would get you in the game, which it did. 
because you came back on in October 2021, a year ago, to talk about your second and much larger acquisition of another landscaping business, which made you the second largest residential landscaping business in Central Florida as of, you know, after two acquisitions as of a year ago. I know that you've been busy. I know that there have been more acquisitions since uh, with more in the offing. So tell, catch us up, Mike, since over the last 12 months, since October 2021. Yeah, absolutely. So we actually have acquired two more landscaping businesses and we actually shifted our focus to completely uh, commercial services and landscaping. So while we love the title of being one of the largest residential landscapers in the central Florida area, it wasn't conducive for us for scaling. And so we made a decision to pivot off to that. And you know, it was a lot of headache and team involvement and strategizing. And I think, you know, rightfully so we did it and it turned out to be a huge success for us. And it led us into acquiring two more companies. And we learned a lot in the first two acquisitions that made us act super quick in the next two acquisitions. And so it's been great. And it's, we're moving at a much faster pace now. As you just mentioned, uh, we do have more in the pipeline. And, you know, our goal and our hope is to continue to acquire good, solid commercial landscaping businesses with great people involved and become a real player. Mike, you, you said it was hard, but I still feel like you, you, were, you kind of are, are understating it. It seems like a huge pivot to take a business that is residential and shift to commercial. Maybe not from, from your crew's perspective. I don't mean to oversimplify, but I imagine it's not too, too different, the work. But what do you, how do you say goodbye to, how do you do it so quickly, turn off all those customers, those residential customers, while turning on enough commercial customers to, you know, obviously bridge that gap? Yeah, I mean, we actually uh, let go of about a million dollars a year of business voluntarily. Uh, and I don't think I've ever said that publicly or posted that anywhere, but, uh, you know, it was a big risk for us, right? And I had to, uh, you know, say some nightly prayer sometimes just to make sure it was the right decision and to make sure we were doing it. But it is a completely different model and a completely different from an operation standpoint. Uh, your customer's different. How they pay is different. How you acquire customers is different. You're, you know, going to the nitty gritty of landscaping. Your equipment is different. Um, the size of oh. mowers you have and the uh, quantity of mowers you have, uh, the attention to detail you have to have and the follow-up, um, the being able from a crew perspective to pace yourself better because you have properties much longer than you are at a residential place. Uh -huh. And, you know, th think about residential. This is a quick, like, uh, illustration. If you're doing someone's house and you leave and go to another house and you're doing that every 20 minutes, you're jumping in the truck for five, 10 minutes, getting a quick break, getting some water and all that. When you're at a commercial property, say uh, a school or a big HOA or, you know, a hospital, you know, you're trimming bushes for, you know, an hour and a half to two hours. There's no break there. So we had to recondition employees. We had to retrain employees. Unfortunately, we had to let some employees go that just, you know, were committed to changing. And also our management team had to kind of get with the strategy as well because it's different managing, you know, one client that pays, you know, uh, 50 grand a month versus, you know, 500 clients that pay a hundred dollars a month. It's completely different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then obviously I was wrong about the, the nitty gritty of landscaping itself. It sounds like, it it's sounds okay, like it, it, it's the, okay. whole, the whole thing is different from top to bottom. Um, 
And the so should we assume that the reason you made this giant strategic decision is because of kind of the obvious that, you know, B2B is preferable to B2C, you know, serving companies is, is preferable to serving consumers. Consumers is all, is recurring, but maybe, you know, there's more churn there. And, and once you land those commercial customers, as long as you do a good job, the churn is less, uh, you know, kind of all of that, all of that. Well, I, I think it's important to say why we bought a residential landscaping business and then immediately essentially turned the faucet off. We bought <laughs> yeah. it partly with the intent, you know, you could say it's a dumb acquisition, but in, in acquiring businesses, something that no one ever talks about is the talent that you acquire, the management team you acquire, the uh, intellectual knowledge of the industry that you acquire. And it's one of like, I think a secret sauce of ours that like no one ever talks about that's like us in other industries or doing this as well is sometimes we buy a company that is like, okay, or it's a good company, but we're really buying the people. And for us, this the our second acquisition, that was a big residential one, had a unique base of customers as residential. It's literally all in one neighborhood, a neighborhood that we wanted to be in. But the talent that came with it was unreal. And you know we should have made three times what we did to get that talent. As well as we still to this day have a focus of going into adjacent industries that are residential focus. And we thought if you become a trusted vendor of these homeowners, you have a foot in the door already. So if we acquire or start an adjacent uh, business, whether it's, uh, I mean, you can imagine what it could be with residential clients. You know, we thought that's a great in for us. Um, and the talent is so important because every owner talks about, oh my gosh, you can't hire people. It's a struggle. You know, we can't find good help or management guys always leave for, you know, whatever reason. Well, we're buying a business and yes, we're buying the revenue and the history and all that stuff, but we're buying people that otherwise wouldn't leave these businesses and they're now on our team and it's, they're ours to lose essentially, which goes into treating them right and all that kind of stuff. But that's kind of the reason why we bought that business and it's, the reason to shift to commercial was, so in landscaping in general, I looked at the top 100 list. There's a magazine that comes out and publishes the top 100. And they act, the information is probably not super accurate, but it's close enough. And everyone on the top 100 is a commercial landscaper, right? And ah. like, I may be a fool, but I'm not that foolish. So if they're doing it, there <laughs> must be a reason, right? And I had many a conversations, and you were super kind enough to introduce me to a few people in the space and helped me tremendously, which I appreciate, you know, so much for that introduction. And it kind of steered us into, we're doing all this work. We want to be like this. Well, let's do what those guys do and see where we land. And in doing that, that opened up the door for M&A for us and acquiring more and more talent, mainly, but also, you know, good businesses. And we've purchased up each time, which is, you know, a good thing as well. And what do you mean by purchase up? Larger and larger? Correct. Each you got each acquisition we've done is larger, um, and we have another few that you know could be announced soon um, that are larger than the previous one we've done. Um, and a, a hidden thing as well in this, or something that we found. So we we are very focused on a certain you know geography to a degree, even though we are expanding that as we get bigger. Um, the network effect that happens in a flywheel of sorts. The more good, talented people that we obtain when we acquire these businesses opens the door for more acquisitions because they know a guy or someone knows that now they were acquired and they're good people. 
and they asked him, hey, how's that Mike guy or how's Benchmark? Oh, it's great. Everything you said, you know, was going to happen, happened. They treat us great, man. We have good benefits, all that stuff. And, you know, that's opened the doors to us. So each of those acquisitions have been off market and the ones coming up are off market. And I don't know when you're releasing this, but maybe we'll probably close by the time, you know, this gets released, but everything's been off market. And it's just been a flywheel of network effect. And, and so you're saying a lot of these due deals that you're sourcing are actually f- via employees that you've acquired through that you now work for you via these previous acquisitions. Yeah. I mean, they've came, you know, in a way through that in turn, not super direct, but, um, you know, if, if I bought you, you know, your podcast and Michael Girdley knows you and thinks highly of you and had a conversation with you of, Hey, you sold to Mike, what's going on? You're like, yeah, Mike was great. He was right. honest. He was fair. Right. He's taking care of my guys. Then Michael Girdley reaches out to me and says, Hey, you know, I'm interested in selling too. What, what do you think? And right. they've come through attorneys of sort and other industry people. But yeah, I mean, it's been vicariously through people that we've acquired. And, and, and it's basically like the larger your footprint gets, the more people you know, the more people you come into contact with, and the more potential connections and future you know, opportunities that, that land in your lap. It's great. Exactly right. That's the flywheel. Yeah. Yeah. And so, Mike, for people out there who haven't acquired anything and have considered landscaping, the would you basically tell them, hey, skip the residential landscaping businesses and go go commercial directly? Yeah, 100%. I mean, not even close. And we, I made probably not decisions I repeat early on, but that's also going back to your point earlier about why I bought smaller the first time so I can go through those growing pains. Although I know a guy, you know, there's a lot of residents from me that are very big and very profitable. For me, it's just, I'm not industry veteran, so I'm not taking the easiest path, but I can deal with B2B a lot better than, you know, a traditional just homeowner. And yeah, I, I would definitely, you know, uh, advocate for someone getting into commercial landscaping for sure. And are the commercial landscaping businesses for sale more competitive or higher or more expensive, higher multiples because they are more desirable for all the reasons we're talking about than, res- than their residential counterparts? Yes, is your answer. Uh, but because we've been off market with every deal, like I haven't, I don't really speak to brokers. And that's kind of contradicting to like our thesis of acquiring more and more businesses. You would think I would talk to brokers all day. I don't. Um, you know, I have a, there's a whole separate conversation about what I think of brokers. But yes, to answer your question, commercial businesses are valued much higher than residential businesses. Okay, Mike, three quick hit questions because I, I don't want to um, let this go too long, although it certainly could. Uh, you mentioned that if you were to do it over again, you would uh, or, or you would advise people out there to just skip residential and go commercial. Is there anything else not related to landscaping or not? Uh, that you would advise an a would-be acquisition entrepreneur, a searcher, somebody who's looking right now but hasn't actually acquired a business that, you know, with with the benefit of your experience now, you you look back and could would say that you did wrong or could have done better? I think buying smaller was very advantageous for me. I don't think that's right for a lot of people. Um, so I go back and forth. I actually had this conversation with someone yesterday, um, that, you know, very well about the size of your initial acquisition. And I I think surround yourself with good, smart people, listen to people that have done it before and listen to advice from other people. Uh, I kind of just had a thesis and put my head down and weigh it and kind of grinded it through. 
And I think I got lucky, honestly. Okay. So, and put another way, buy you you'd still wouldn't say that buying small was the wrong thing to do in your case, but you do appreciate how kind of risky it can be. And and you see all the weak points of doing so. A lot of things could have happened to turn it the other way, and it would have been a disaster. And we yeah. just got lucky enough that a couple of those things fell our way, and we had the right support system to see us through that. Yeah, great. Uh, and Mike, what are what is the aggregate revenue of Benchmark uh, today after these four acquisitions? Why don't, why don't you tell us what it is after the, the four acquisitions that you have made that are public, and if these ones that are coming up close, what will it be? Unfortunately, I can't share that with you. Um, but oh. we are a uh, we are ex- much much larger than the last time we were on this podcast. Okay. So if I released that information back then, just think we're multiples bigger now. More than twice as large. What we would be on the top one hundred list if we wanted to divulge that information. Okay. All right, the top 100 list. So whatever the, the bottom threshold is of, of the revenue on that top 100 list, you're north of that. Sounds good. And then, Mike, last question. Are you, you know, there's landscaping is is a space where there's a lot of private equity interest, public companies acquiring. Um, so there's just a there's just kind of a, a pretty well-known path, <laughs> pretty well-known path to uh, Mike just, by the way, audience, Mike just wrote down on a piece of paper and shared with me his revenue number. So I know it, but I won't share it with the audience. I that, did not. That is that, a lie. That, that felt really cool. I felt like somebody slid a piece of paper across the across the table to me. <laughs> um, uh, Mike, so buying, uh, excuse me, growing quickly and then exiting having a nice big exit to a larger, say, public company or private equity company um, is something you hear a lot about in the landscaping business. Is that your? Is that what you're pursuing? Uh, yeah. You know, it, ironically, we've had a couple of the strategic guys reach out to us recently in the last couple, you know, 30 days. Because again, as we're buying bigger and bigger companies, we're getting better brain recognition. Um, and the number I just showed you is going to be even bigger by the end of this year. So we're attracting attention just from being kind of known as a buyer in the industry, French strategics, you know, coming to us. It's optionality is always good. Um, we don't have a path for sure, for certain. Uh, but, you know, like I said earlier, I mean, we want to be a player in this industry and selling early is not the way to do that. And, you know, it's funny, like, you always have those questions on Twitter, like, would you rather take a million dollars or take, you know, a penny a day and double it or whatever? And, you know, compounding is real. And the better businesses we buy and the longer we hold them, the better success we're going to do. Yeah. And because of the support system we have and the capital structure we have, we have no fun life. We're not forced to sell anything. So if you want us, like, you're going to have to pay a pretty penny for us uh, to get out of this thesis because we believe in it and we are armed and ready to go and fulfill that thesis. You hear that bright view? <laughs> uh, Mike, yeah, there you go. Mike, I, I got a, sorry. I just got a couple more questions that, that occurred to me. I got to ask. Um, you're making it look easy, man. You, you got into this less than two years ago and you know, it's a big number you're showing me and you know, you've got, you'll, you're looking at having maybe five, six, maybe seven acquisitions by the end of the year, maybe more. Um, in a very short amount of time, is this, do you think that you're, and and you do talk about how difficult it is and how hard you're working. Um, so so no no questions on that. But is this something that you know 
I could you, you feel like I should considering repeating doing a playbook that I should follow in my own market here. I'm in Northern Virginia. I was in San Francisco. You know, is this something that people in major markets around the country should consider doing, or is there something special you're doing or special about your market or what? I'll answer on a general census. I just in landscaping, I would never buy anything that's dependent on snow revenue, just as like a baseline. Um, you look at, you know, you mentioned Brightview, they're publicly traded. You can read their earning calls. Uh, they have volatility based on weather each year and their earnings go up and down based on that. So I would never do that. But to your general point of buying a commercial landscaping business, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, my part of my thesis was in an industry that doesn't trade for all that crazy multiples relative to other industries um, with equal earnings. Um, it's a pretty good one to be in. Um, it, you know, it's a grind. You got to have good people and, and that, you know, another secret to our success is the team behind me, right? Like, you know, my partner and, you know, our investor base has really never made themselves public. You know, I told them I don't care if they do, uh, but they're amazing. I mean, it's, I, I would be nowhere near where I am today if I didn't have the partner and, you know, the invest investment base that I have, um, you know, so it's surround yourself with good people, man. And good things yeah. happen, I think. Yeah. That's great, Mike. Well, I, I, I was going to, I'm not sure there was a question here, maybe more of, a, of an observation, but I remember in our first uh, in our first interview back in July, part of the reason you bought a landscaping business was because you were cruising down the road during COVID at your day job, at your W-2, commuting at your W-2, and just seeing all these landscaping trucks around in the, you know, in the peak of COVID when everything else is shut down. And you said to yourself, man, well, I guess landscaping is is, uh, you know, not only recession resistant, but pandemic resistant. Um, you, you probably have different thoughts about the industry now, the, the pros and cons, but I just think it's, it's cool how, how a germ of an idea can turn into what you've built in, in less than two years. Listen, man, when I told my mom, we had the loan for Thanksgiving dinner and my wife and I told my mom, we're leaving where I want to, which was unpolite, you know, where my whole background, but like, where I came from it was an unbelievable setup I had and great deal and all that kind of stuff. And I said, Hey, I'm leaving to go buy a landscape business. She literally cried, like, don't do it. You're an idiot. <laughs> so I appreciate that, mom. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a crazy, crazy journey so far, man. Cool. Cool. Well, uh, congratulations on your success so far, Mike. Look forward to, uh, you know, sending you that plaque when you're, when you're, uh, guest <laughs> with four appearances, maybe sometime next year. I'll let you go, sir. Thank you very much and congratulations. Thanks.